Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters for the week ending September 17. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this week's podcast, you will hear from uh, Bobby telling us about how uh, she deals with uh, spiders in the car. And honestly, she's a bit of a chicken and I'm sorry, Bobby, but... You should be ashamed. Uh, Adam Wilcock also joined us to talk about his book, The Last Hurrah, Melbourne Premiers 1964. A very excited Melbourne fan indeed. And uh, Chandy Bates from Get Up came in and talked to us about uh, the new report, Democracy Dossier, Secrecy and Power in Australia's National Security State. I have a little story about a road trip to Barnawatha that gets a little bit interesting uh, once we arrive. Uh, Fee Wright has a book review on Sally Rooney's new book, Beautiful World, Where Are You? Our Friday funny bugger is Michael Chambo-Chamberlain. He chats about Masked Singer and also the AFL Grand Final. And then Simone Boldy has a, a couple of screen reviews, Dave on Binge and Rami on Stan. Check it out. Triple R. I was driving um, home from work yesterday, actually, and I, I was at the traffic lights and there was a bit of sun just shining in down on my feet and I noticed what I thought was a spider on my foot as I was driving. I'm not sure if, oh. if, if, if that's ever happened to you as you were driving. Thankfully, I was, I was stopped at um, traffic lights. Turns out it was just a leaf. But <laughs> at that moment, like my heart just stopped. And I was like, oh my, I'm going to have to get out of the car here. I'm going to have to pop it in park. But I just, I, I'm not great in situations, I think, especially in the car, if there is a spider. And it's quite dangerous. I, I can understand how people have accidents, pulling down your, what is it, your, the, visor, the visor? And then, like, if a, a spider come, comes down or anything, even a leaf, I'd probably jump as well. Um, but years ago, I was on the way to uh, cricket training and my mate was driving. She just got on her peas and we were coming from, she was from Ballarat and I was, you know, living in Blackwood. So we were country girls driving in the city and we were on Queen's Road, uh, at peak hour, like near Albert Park on the way to Junction Oval. And it was just bumper to bumper. There were trucks everywhere. Uh, and Whitey was driving. It was me and another one of my mates. And I was sitting in the front seat as well. And then all of a sudden, a huntsman came inside my window oh. and inside the windscreen. Oh, wow. And I have screamed and I have undone my seatbelt and jumped in the back seat. <laughs> <laughs> and my friend in the back seat, she's like, what's happening? And then and my, the driver didn't realise. She's just like, what are you doing? And then I said, spider, and I've pointed, and this massive huntsman is just walk, crawling <laughs> across the windscreen and going closer to the driver, and she had trucks next to her. Yeah. She Like, there's nothing. Thank nothing. God she was driving and not me or my other mate that was in the car as well because it who knows what would have happened? Anyway, we're screaming, um, and then the huntsman has dropped from the windscreen onto the dashboard. So it's getting closer oh. to the driver, and she is just—I think there were tears coming out of her eyes, but she stayed there, and she was stiff and she was scared. And then it just kept crawling and crawling. And we were no help in the back seat—absolutely no help. If anything, mm. making it so much worse for the driver. Uh, and then eventually, mm. the spider went, uh, crawl, she wound her window down uh, and the spider just crawled out and she wound her window back up. So it just it came in my Get side, out. went across and then went Beautiful out. Handled. Oh, my she was God. Brilliant. She was brilliant. She just And she just kept driving and was just frozen and then 
Like we we were literally around the corner from where we needed to be and we got there and she just, she got out of the car and she just needed a moment. I, she just handled it so well. We were yeah. terrible. Um, How are you abandoning sheep at the oh, first sign of danger? I know. I, yeah. And I don't think I would be like that in other situations, but this situation, I totally. But had you not kicked the driver on the way out? Uh, uh, like <laughs> squeezing th- through that gap. I was just thinking, how did you get into the back seat so easily? Oh, I just jumped through. You take off your seatbelt and you just jump in between the two <laughs> seats. Oh, I was young and <laughs> I'm so more impressed mobile then. by yeah, because also the fact that the insect or an animal or a whatever a creepy crawly takes the hint. You know, when you open a door, and it just fucking smashes <laughs> yes. its head or yeah, like yeah, circles yeah. around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like use your brain. Honestly, you've been alive for like. Uh, millennia, use your evolutionary brain to get the hell out of this dangerous situation. Yes. Was it a, a one yeah, of those it windows? Was. It, was, it was like an old laser hatchback. Like, yeah. So they had, so to, they had wind to wind it, it down. To, Yeah, she wound it. Oh, yeah, my so she, God. Yeah, she what extraordinary down. control to have over every – I just have no control. I'm so mm. impressed by that. Oh, yeah. I mean, she was like a class above the rest of us in, in pressure situations on the field as well. She was much better than us. <laughs> She's just one of those people with a level head, I think. Yeah. What was the role in the team? Like, what do they... Yeah, what was her... Uh, she she was an opening batter. Oh, exactly. Oh, yeah, there exactly. you go. Doesn't that make sense? Yeah. I was in the back seat with the leg spin bowler. <laughs> Classic. That's so perfect. Yeah. Isn't it? So she's the... Who would that be in the team today, in a, in a cricketing team today? Who's our opening batsman in the women's team in the men's team? No, I don't know. I'm watching cricket. Yeah, know. well, Beth Mooney, um, who, yeah, and she's a level head. I'm just trying to think who, I know um, Meg Lanning comes in next. Who's Beth Mooney open with? Someone who's a superstar who I can't think mm. of off the top of my head. I was just thinking just over time, like the, because you've got pressure situation. Imagine, yeah. you know, Kirtley Ambrose or whoever at the top of his run yeah. and you're just like copping it and n- not showing any panic. Yeah. Seeing off the new ball, out goes the spider. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, one, you should be a cricket commentator and you can start using out, <laughs> out goes the spider because I think that could catch on. But it could also be a training method for opening batsmen. Yeah. Yes. Like can you get through sitting in the front of a car where it's going to release a huntsman, see if you can yes. hold your nerve. Yeah. Also it sounds like We know Warney would just be out there in a <laughs> second. Right. He'd sacrifice the back seat by rolling yeah. out the front door. Yeah. So true. Sounds like a promo for SAS or something as well. It doesn't it. <laughs> What's that new TV show where they take them into the wild? Can you can you survive a... Huntsman crawling over the dash. <laughs> on Queen's Road with trucks. With trucks hurtling past. <laughs> Nerves of steel. And Bobby kicking you in the face. <laughs> Melbourne's own Triple R. Melbourne Football Club historian Adam Woolcock is owner of the MFC history site demonwiki.org, commended in the multimedia category of the Victorian Community History Awards and is the largest single club sporting history website in Australia. Since 2005, Adam has published match reviews at demonblog.com and in 2017 released The Great Depression, a memoir of Melbourne's disastrous years from 2007 to 2016. His new book, The Last Hurrah, Melbourne Premier's 1964, is out via Hardy Grant to tell us about it. The prolific Demon Tragic joins us now. Adam, welcome to Breakfasters. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me uh, at the peak moment of football for the last 57 years. <laughs> well, that's right. How is the timing on this book? Uh, it's remarkable. It's very lucky on my uh, my behalf. I actually uh, sort of started doing this process just after Melbourne had finished 17th 
a couple of years ago. So it, it's landed at an unreal time. And as we got to the point where the book was about to come out and Melbourne was at the top of the ladder and I was sort of waiting for it to all, waiting for something to go wrong, waiting for something to go wrong. And uh, it's just kept going right to this <laughs> yeah. point. So I hope that keeping going right uh, can drag out for another couple of weeks. Uh, not just for the book sales, but to uh, complete my life's mission. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, what does the book capture and how big does 1964 loom in your life? Yeah, well, the, the book is focused around that 1964 season, which was Melbourne's 12th and last premiership. Uh, but it, it, it sort of takes the run up to that as well, the, the building of the club um, and the unfortunate decline after that, where 1964, they didn't even play in the finals again until 1987. Um, so, so it's, yeah, it's, it's a really fascinating story. Um, if you're, if you're into football, um, and you, if you're into, into tragedy really, cause, mm. uh, there's just so many bizarre things that happened to the club after 1964, uh, including in 1965, sacking the coach that had just delivered six premierships in 10 years. Uh, and it was pretty much all over from there. So yeah, look, it's a, it's a subject that's really close to my heart. Um, I've spent a lot of years sort of just researching Melbourne football club related topics, uh, and it really is, um, yeah, it's just going to be magnificent. If if they can get over the line on Saturday week, uh, I'm certainly not claiming anything in advance, but I'm, as they say in politics, quietly confident. Uh, yeah. I don't know if this is like the <laughs> saying Macbeth before the play or whatever, but is it okay to talk about the Norm Smith curse? Because it is, it does play a part in this book, obviously, and it's hard to ignore it with what's happening right now. Yeah, well, well, that's what they call the uh, the drop-off after 1964. Um, as I mentioned, they, they sacked Norm Smith the next year. There was a bit of backroom politics going on at the club, and it, it lasted about three days because I think everyone realised what a, a stupid idea that was to sack <laughs> the greatest coach of all time. Then uh, the air had sort of just gone out of the place, and after that a lot of things changed and, and they never came back. So it, it's not – when you say Norm Smith curse, for me it's not some sort of – you know, voodoo thing where, where he's controlling the, pulling the strings of history um, from, from beyond the grave. It's more just a, it, it's just a, a shorthand for all the disasters that have gone on, on since then. And um, yeah, we're, fingers crossed that what curse there is, uh, is about to be lifted. Uh, Mike Sheehan notes in the forward that, you know, you'd won what, six flags in 10 years up to that point. And, and since that day, Hawthorne had, well, he, Hawthorne had one flag and now has 13. How much of your identity has been wrapped up in being a loser? <laughs> no, that, that is a perfectly fair question. <laughs> Growing up in Hawthorne, I really made the uh, wrong decision of what team to go for in the 80s. But it, it's almost become uh, yeah, a storyline over the last 30 years of, of just that, that quest towards a premiership. So uh, I think that every weird thing that's happened since then, um, the first game I went to at the MCG, Melbourne lost by 120 points. Uh, I was there when they lost by 186 points to Geelong, <laughs> uh, almost merging with Hawthorne uh, at the end of 1996. All of that is just so just shambolic things that have happened over the years. I'm hoping that we can... Uh, Pulled, pulled down the curtain over them on a couple of weeks and, and just say that was all part of the ride mm. to get to where we are today uh, and move on with the next phase of our supporting life. And what about the cliche of the Demon supporters? Do you embrace that? Do you lean into it? Do you push back against it? No, I think if you've ever actually been to a Melbourne game, there's probably as many cravat-wearing, cheese-eating ponces as uh, most other clubs there, but <laughs> a lot of uh, the, the common man is uh, right across 
the, the Melbourne Football Club. And I look from my perspective, I, I never came from, I did not come from that kind of background. I, I came from a uh, more of a, a working class background myself, so I don't I don't subscribe to that. But it's nice if you're going to be stereotyped. It's you know it's some of the stereotypes you could get in footy. I think being uh, you know Range Rover driving, skiing, rich people. Yeah, you know I'm not arguing with that. I'll. I'll be happy it's to take my bad. Can you some offering a free trip to the snow or something? <laughs> <laughs> Can I don't you think explain? I've been to the snow since about 1988 <laughs> myself. So I might- Treat myself next snow season if we uh, if we can win a flag this year. Can you explain though where that kind of comes from? Because you do you do touch on that in the book. My my dad was a Melbourne supporter um, as well, but very much not of the cravat wearing type, uh, and didn't pass his team on to me. I suppose out of um, I don't know, maybe it was a bad time in the eighties. Uh, so I hear, but uh, you know, can you explain where that reputation comes from? Yeah, back in the day, the, obviously all the other clubs had their suburban uh, supporter base, um, whereas Melbourne didn't have that. So it was really just in the in the earliest days of the club, it was the fans of the MCC uh, and fans of that sort of uh, upper socioeconomic demographic. So until probably the, the Norm Smith era, probably post-World War II, when the club was so good that it started to gather those neutral fans who just wanted to see an awesome team, uh, it, it probably was a fair stereotype, uh, but I think now it's um, yeah, it's it's not. If you go to a game, you'll see that it's not in any way uh, the truth. How do you go during cricket season? Uh, like AFL is obviously a big part of your life. Is it yeah, is it depressing? Season, to be honest, um, I, I respect the game and I like the game, but I I try to only set foot in the MCG <laughs> to watch Melbourne. Um, I have, unfortunately, I've been to one grand final in my time and it didn't involve Melbourne. So it's kind of like I, I miss out again, <laughs> miss out again this year. Um, but, yeah, it's it, look, uh, footy season, you know, that's you can sort of set the clock on footy season um, in my life. Like yeah. it's kind of the deal I've got with my wife that I have to do anything <laughs> she wants to do in footy season and I get that one day a week. Uh, when it is on to watch the game, so you have the D's flying uh, that flag flying above the MCG that's been returned from 1964. You've got Ron Barassi watching on. What are you most sentimental about about this upcoming match? Um, it's probably for me growing up in a later era. It's more than Neil Danaher um, watching on as well. Um, as your listeners might know he's just having a big battle with um, motor neuron disease and has been for several years. Um, and he's just got this amazing positive um, outlook on life despite his battles. And to see someone like that who put so many years in um, as a coach at our club from 1998 to 2007, took us to our last grand final in 2000, um, just seeing him watch on um, is just really um, you know, important to people who grew up in my era. And, of course, as of yesterday, Nathan Jones, who, who one of the great Melbourne players um, who went through so much so much defeat um, over his career. I think when he played his 300th game, his record was 99 wins and 201 losses. Uh, and he retired yesterday. Uh, came home from Perth to be with the, his wife as she had twins um, and, and gave up any chance if he had a chance of playing in the grand final. So I'm also really sentimental about hoping that to see him in some way rewarded for his, his stay at the club. Uh, by by being connected to a premiership. Yeah, are you? Have you been diehard from day one? Has there ever been a moment uh, in all the ups and downs where you've I don't know thrown a scarf in the bin or backed a, a truckload of chicken poo onto the steps of your 
clubs, do- you know, th- there's been moments for every fan who's diehard over the years. Have you had a moment where you've you've turned your back? Uh, no, not really. When I was a, a teenager, I sort of had a couple of sooky teenage years where I, I, you know, didn't want to do all the stuff I'd done when I was a kid. So I, I went away for a couple of years, then came back and got right back into it. Uh, but I think from my perspective, having that, that blog that I write, demonblog.com, um, it just gives me the opportunity to, to vent my spleen in a <laughs> more productive way uh, on a weekly basis. So there was a lot of years where, where really bad stuff was happening every week and you'd sort of feel like, why am I even bothering doing this? But at least you got to just come home and just write, write your feelings and um, you know draw a line on it and move on from there. So I've never done the chicken poo. I've never poured <laughs> chicken hearts over the, uh, the clubs. <laughs> You know, um, doorstep or anything, and, and I'm hoping I'm not going to start on Saturday week, Sunday Sunday week. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Do you have any predictions for the match, Norm Smith, or are you the wrong person to ask? Pardon me, what was that? Do you have any predictions for the match, like Norm Smith or anything like that? Or um, yeah, like I said, I'm quietly confident that um, Melbourne will win. I don't think it will be a, as uh, as comprehensive as it was the other night. And I think if if we win, that you can look for a Clayton Oliver to to rack up a lot of. Uh, possessions in the midfield, which is always popular with voters of uh, Norm Smith medals, but also Max Gorn. Uh, he couldn't possibly play the same game he played the other night, which is one of the most ridiculous performances I've ever seen in my life. I was actually laughing by the end of that third quarter um, by the time he, he kicked his fifth goal. But I think he'd be a popular choice as well for the Norm Smith uh, if we win. Uh, he would certainly be someone who would play a huge contribution um, in any victory. But in in the interests of karma and uh, jinxes and stuff like that. I am not writing the Bulldogs off here. They could do very well indeed. Um, but uh, from my perspective, I really hope they don't. Yeah, right. Bob, Bobby, you, you're talking to it. I'm being very respectful here. I am a dog I'm a dog who's supported, but it's your time. You've got your 10 minutes, so I'll let you go. <laughs> uh, I can't believe the timing of this book and, and yeah. the years in the making to have landed at this moment. Uh, the Last Hurrah, Melbourne, Premiers, 1964 by Adam Woolcock. You, if you were a Demon supporter, you'd be crazy. I mean, not I'm not your publicist, but you'd be crazy not to have a copy, wouldn't you? Yep. Um, look, unfortunately, the only downside is there's about probably 10,000 copies stuck in bookstores that no one can just walk into a store and go, oh, there's a book I'd like to, uh, to read. So, yeah, if you've got a local bookstore or something you can do, do you a click and collect or drop one in your mailbox or something, it'd be great to support them um, at this time. But hopefully, fingers crossed, you'll be able to get into the bookstore and and grab a copy yourself in the, in the next few weeks. All right. It's out via Hardy Grant, The Last Hurrah. Adam Woolcock, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 R. Across two decades since the 9-11 attacks on New York and Washington, the Australian government has built a powerful national security apparatus, going from zero laws addressing terrorism to 92, amounting to more than 5,000 pages of powers, rules and defences, significantly more than the other Five Eyes nations. In response, GetUp has commissioned the Democracy Dossier, Secrecy and Power in Australia's National Security State. To tell us about the report, GetUp's Democracy Campaign Director, Chandy Bates, joins us now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Our pleasure. Uh, What do you find most ominous in this report? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question because there's, uh, there's a lot. Um, and, you know, as you said, I think it, it, it really sounds the alarm on how 20 years of lawmaking um, that's been fixated on, on national security and, and counterterrorism um, has captured journalists, it's captured whistleblowers in its web, um, but it's also entrenched, like, a growing culture of secrecy in this government, um, along with the willingness to punish those who threaten it. 
So I think what's really terrifying is that right now government respects for transparency, for accountability um, and for freedom of the press is at an all-time low um, and that we're really a world leader in this and not in a good way. Let's start with the whistleblowers getting ensnared in laws that were really aimed at terrorists. Um, How has that come about and what are the most prominent examples? Yeah, so I mean, one of the one of the reasons for this um, is uh, our the, the way that these laws are designed um, is, is the powers are quite broad that they're, they're quite sweeping, um, and things in in our in our espionage laws, um, things like the definition of national security, it actually extends to anything to do with Australia's um, economic, political, or military relations with other countries. So, kind of essentially anything to do with Australia's, you know. Conversations with other countries um, get captured in, in national security, um, and and what we've seen is we've seen a willingness um, in in this government to to prosecute to prosecute whistleblowers, um, to, to go after journalists, and to go after whistleblowers, um, which who are the people that you know are actually the ones that are there to expose wrongdoing. Um, we've seen it with you know the, the Afghan files that people might, might remember. Um, came about from uh, an ABC story. Um, the ABC was actually raided in broad daylight um, and uh, the, there was, for quite a, for a period of time, there was quite an irony where, where the journalists and the whistleblower were actually on trial and, and you know, not, not, not the people who um, were exposed for all this type of wrongdoing um, that those files exposed. And the report outlines that, you know, these laws on average spend not a hell of a lot of time in Parliament being discussed. Yeah, that's right. So um, the vast majority of these laws, because there's 92 of them, as you said, um, took on average about 2.5 days to be rushed through Parliament. Um, and that kind of quick and politicised lawmaking, um, it really dodges scrutiny, which is, is not good um, in any sense of our democracy. You know, we, we should have a healthy and rigorous process of scrutiny in our Parliament, but it's especially not good with these types of laws where they're actually granting sweeping and excessive powers um, they're very rarely contracting. If anything, they're only ever expanding. Many of them are designed to be permanent, um, and, and, and they're just being rushed through, um, playing on that sense of fear and urgency and haste. Uh, Peter Dutton's super ministry has bipartisan support. What, how is it a threat to democracy? Yeah, so the report actually is a, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a democracy campaigner. I've been doing this for a while, but I... Um, I uh, was quite shocked at um, the the story of of the Home Affairs Department that that, that the report looks at. And something that I didn't realise is that um, it actually came about as a Labor proposal and the coalition at the time that it was proposed um, were really opposed to it, as as were almost every single government um, department and agency, because it entrenches and it puts a huge amount of power, um, it concentrates it in just one single department. Um, But... Peter Dutton and his secretary um, kind of personally influenced the influence, you know, its creation. Um, it was against the advice of multiple independent expert reviews. Um, and similarly, kind of to the counterterrorism laws, um, the story of this, you know, super ministry um, is one where the power really, really continues to expand um, and rarely contracts. And what about the uh, role between whistleblowers and journalists and how under these laws... Journalists in the last 20 years have found it increasingly difficult, bordering on impossible to do a thorough job. Yeah, it's become very clear that these laws are making journalism a 
harder, but also a riskier day job. We've seen FOIs, so that's freedom of information requests, uh, refusals that are at record rates. Um, when they're actually released, um, they're subject to huge reduction. So it's really difficult for journalists to expose information, even if it is in the public interest. Um, but also, you know, the, the, the reality is when you're seeing raids on journalists, whether it's their homes, their offices, and you're seeing the secret trials of whistleblowers, um, that also adds up to... It, it has a chilling effect on journalism. It, it, it means that, you know, it's, it's something that journalists probably think about when they're thinking about public stories. Um, it, it, it has a chilling effect on people wanting to speak out. And I think what we're seeing is a pattern emerge that, you know, we as the public, we, we don't... We no longer have the right necessarily to know. Um, and the sad reality is that we probably will never know the stories that aren't reported on, um, that they, they're not necessarily going to be reported on. Um, and and that, that's not what a healthy democracy entails. You know, a healthy democracy needs free and fearless journalism to keep power in check and to hold governments to account. Um, independent MP Andrew Wilkie famously resigned from the ONA uh, when we invaded Iraq 20 years ago now. And so this is a man who was on the inside now on the outside and he's spoken very strongly um, to all these themes over his time in Parliament. What do you say about this report? Yeah, so this report's been backed in by um, independent politicians like Andrew Wilkie and also by Rex Patrick, who we know are massive champions for transparency and for oversight and have been advocating against these creeping surveillance powers for a really, really long time. Um, I think, you know, we, we, we need more MPs like that in Parliament who are willing to take this on. Um, one of the other things is, you know, uh, back in the day, um, Andrew Wilkie is actually the only non, non-major party member who's ever been a member of the Parliamentary Joint Standing Committee on Intelligence and Security, which is a massive mouthful, but um, is essentially the, the very secretive and very powerful committee that um, looks at all of these laws. Um, he was on that committee for a short amount of time um, uh, under, I think, under that power-sharing relationship with the Gillard government. Um, and I think, you know, one of the really big recommendations of this report is that that committee needs to be opened up um, to beyond just the major parties, and we need to really look at that um, so that we can have those those voices outside the major parties available to have that scrutiny as well. In addition to that, what is the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner and is it effective? Look, it's it's a good question. Um, I mean, with, with freedom of information refusals at record heights, um, it's, you know, not not a great thing. But I think, you know, we, we need to think about where this is actually coming from. And the reality is that this culture of secrecy um, that's been entrenched is really a hallmark of the current coalition government. They're the ones that are making it difficult for journalists to access information about what government departments are doing and, and what they're doing wrong. And we need to really question, you know, why they're determined to dodge accountability and dodge scrutiny at all terms. So we've learned that safety is a priority with the public and journalists as a class aren't exactly popular figures either. So how do you get... Uh, the broad populace to value transparency when safety and protection is paramount? Yeah, I mean, look, we, we all want to be safe. But there's nothing to suggest that um, we don't. But, um, you know, speaking as someone who, who works on these issues, the reality is that these laws have been sold to us as a means of protecting us, and it's really that that fear that has justified brushing them through in an incredibly um, fast manner. The powers are really sweeping. They're really disproportionate. Um, 
I think if people if people care about this, you know, have a look at the laws that were passed just a couple of weeks ago. Um, there's a, it, you know, we had to make changes to this report even even as it was going to print because this this national security apparatus is just continually getting bigger. Um, there was a rather kind of creepy bill passed called the Identify and Disrupt Bill, and essentially what it does is it it gives police the power to you know hack into your phone, your laptop, collect your or delete your information, take over your social media accounts, and and monitor all of that without the need for a warrant. Um, no other country has the power to spy on their citizens like this, and that's something that we should all care about and we should all be afraid of. Mm. You get the sense, though, that sometimes the me- you know you say these things and they sound terrifying. And I think if you said this to the, any person on the street, they'd say that sounds terrifying to me, and I don't agree with it. However, you get the sense that these laws are being passed and going through unnoticed. Uh, is there a way to make these issues? M- Bring them to the forefront a little bit more, so people are seeing these on, you know, on on the front on the front of newspapers or on or on the TV, so that we're talking about this as top of mind stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like uh, one of the things that's so important um, is is in order to you know claw our democracy back and start to repair these cracks, we all we all need to get involved. So a healthy democracy, it thrives on political participation. It's it's what we do with our members every single day. So. If you care about these issues, I really encourage you to talk to your friends about them, talk to your family about it, write to your local MP, make a submission to the next inquiry, you know, write into your local newspaper, um, because it's up to all of us to make our interests known, um, to take part in democracy and to hold politicians to account. They're, they're elected to Parliament to represent us, um, and it's really important that we make our interests known. Just before we wrap up, can you... Uh, thinking about Alexander Downer leaving politics and then uh, following one of the cases that the report describes. Uh, so Alexander leaves politics and then picks up a gig with the Woodside Petroleum, which was the Australian company which benefited from the Witness K deal. Uh, can you can you just explain that cause and then we'll say goodbye. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so the the case of witness, uh, the story of witness K, um, it's 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 still ongoing. Um, it is a lot of people don't don't know much about it, but um, essentially, uh, an intelligence whistleblower um, known known as witness K um, spoke out um, about uh, the Australian government a bugging scandal, where essentially the Australian government was uh, fine on on the Timor-Leste government um, over a deal for resources and that kind of thing. Um, Witness K and, and his lawyer, Bernard Kaliri, um, actually were charged as criminals for exposing what the government had done. Yet another instance where we see the people that, you know, are speaking out, exposing that wrongdoing, doing the right things, that are being charged as criminal. Um, Witness K, uh, he, he pled, they pled guilty um, and they've uh, had a suspended sentence. Um, but, you know, that, that's still was that escaped jail time, but that's still a whistleblower that's been tried. Um, and Bernard Kaliri is, is still facing those charges. Um, it's it's been described as, you know, one of the most significant threats to freedom of expression in this country and also one of the most secretive trials. And I think uh, I'd really encourage, you know, all your listeners to, to go up and read about it. Not enough people know about it. It's still ongoing. Um, and if you care about it, you know, write to your MP about it as well because um, it, it, it's a huge miscarriage of justice. Mm. And I bring it up because it's an example of a lack of transparency serving 
the interests of others, not us. So often we're told that it's for our own good that we don't know about something, it's national security. But this is a pretty clear example of it benefiting a very select few. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and, and you know, as I said, the people who are um, eventually, who have the, the charges mounted against them, the people that are being charged as criminals, are the ones that are exposing that wrongdoing in the first place. Yep. And where do we read the report if we w- choose to do so? Yeah, so um, head over to our website, getup.org.au slash democracy dossier. Um, we can, we'll, it's also on our Twitter. Um, and we've also got an event tonight, um, which will be on our Twitter as well, um, with the authors of the report, um, with Get Up's general counsel, and also with um, former Senator Scott Ludlam, who we know was a massive champion against these um, surveillance powers when they were being rammed through. So um, if, if your listeners want to attend, we'd love to see them there. Chandy Bates from Get Up, thanks very much. Thank you. Bye. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. A few years ago, um, I went on a road trip. I think I was talking earlier about um, my junior cricket teams that I was playing in, uh, and we had this girl that played in the team, and she was from Barnawatha. Not sure if you guys know where Barnawatha is. A few hours away. I should actually look that up, but um, it's a few hours' drive too. But if you've got carpooling and uh, a multiple people drinking in the car probably took about four hours um (laughs) but I was one of the designated drivers we had yeah three car loads going up I think it was uh yeah but uh Tara we were all going to stay at her place in Barnamotha everyone was having a good time and do you guys remember that game uh called shotgun to get the front seat yeah. You guys play, yeah, everyone plays Shotgun. Do you know that game? Is it a, oh, it's a I don't game? Know. Oh, is it not a game. Okay, I just sorry, thought yeah. it was a life rule. It, yeah, mm. exactly. But yeah. we had, because uh, we were stopping so many times, we just had rules of when you could actually call oh. Shotgun. Because uh, people like in the bars, like have finishing their beer, they're like, Shotgun. It's like, no, you can't call it here. <laughs> no. you got to be outside. And then as soon as we'd get outside, people would be like, Shotgun. It's like, no, you have to be in the vicinity of the car park. Like if there's a gut, like a, a gutter, you have to be down in that gutter where the car parks, the same level, and I have to have the keys out. Because people were just jumping the gun and was like, no, you, can, you have to wait. So we, that was people were getting drunk, people were having fun, and there was just a little game of when you could say shotgun. Happened all the way to, uh, to Barnamotha. And we finally got to the, the Barney pub uh, and we're sitting in there and people got their first round of drinks and everything. And then someone yells out, shotgun. I go, mate, we just got here. We're not leaving yet. And then one of the bar staff ran through the bar and said, he's got a shotgun. Right? Are you serious? And everyone was so drunk. After four hours of drinking, I was sober. There was another sober person who was sitting in the car. She, she was asleep in the car at the back, at, at the front of the pub. And, um, and we're like, holy, sh- yeah, right? And then the people, the staff have gone get in the back. And the girls were so drunk, people just thought it was a joke. And I'm like, girls, get in the back. They're like, come into uh, the bistro area because that was closed down. They're like, everyone come into the bistro area. So everyone ran into it. And it was just a surreal, it's like, what is happening here? Like this tiny town, it, it, it just did not seem real. And then the managers, like one of the bar staff, they've come in and they're like, girls, need you to just keep your voice down. And the girls are giggling and they're like, stop giggling. One of the girls' partners was um, uh, one of the drivers and she was the one, she was at the front of the pub just asleep in the front, in the back seat. And she's like, my partner's out there. And he's like, I'm, you have to wait because there's a man at the front. And we're like, well, well what are we going to do? 
and then um, they said uh, after people, it felt like a long time, it might have been a few minutes, uh, the manager's come in and he's like, okay, we're going to sneak you girls out the front, um, he's to the side, so just get in your cars and go. So it's like, okay, and he's like, go. And we all got up. Three of the girls stop at the bar to order takeaways. <laughs> And the, the publican has gone, just take the slab. And they put a slab on the thing, said, get out of here. So girls have grabbed the slab, ran out the front. Uh, we've got in the cars, everyone's panicked. We got in the cars and we got to our friend's place and it was just crazy tense. Um, we, we get to the place, which was only a couple of minutes down the road, and the girl's dad called up the pub to see what was happening and stuff. And it was a local who got caught, cut off at the bar and then just went out the front, <sighs> no gun, just screamed out that they had a gun and they would, yeah, if they didn't serve him again. <clears throat> Intense, crazy. So, yeah, so we ended up just having a it, – it was just such a crazy – like we had – we were talking about going to this pub and, and that was a whole part of the trip and we were there for five or ten minutes or whatever. But the reactions of people in those situations, I think if you were <sighs> – even if you were drunk, I mean, that would sober you up, wouldn't you think? I wouldn't be asking for takeaways. I wouldn't be giggling in the in the bistro. But surprisingly, yeah, some of the girls were. Sorry, this isn't as funny uh, a story. No, it's, it's just. Like, a, I just can't believe it. I mean, what are the chances? Yeah, you've been playing shotgun this entire time. You turn up at a pub and someone calls shotgun out, and there's a guy suspectedly having a, a shotgun at the front of the bus. So, That's gee, this, this guy really wants to get in the passenger seat. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Jesus, so, that uh, is crazy. Yeah, that is like that would sober me up so fast, right? like so fast. And me, because I was one of the drivers, I was just on a different wavelength to everyone else. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, shut up. <laughs> when we were hiding in the bistro, for Christ's sake, shush. Um, but yeah, we, we we got through it, and then like when we went to the publicans, they actually knew the the family of the house that we were staying and stuff, and so a few of them come over afterwards, and and everyone was just having a good old laugh about it. Oh yeah, that was just Baza. He had a few too many, and I was like, oh my god, this doesn't happen. This is has this happened before? They said it hadn't happened before, and they actually said it was the most exciting thing that's happened in Barnawatha in twenty years. <laughs> the most exciting thing that's happened to me, and I wasn't even there. I know. I'm tingling, honestly. I so wow. Did the girls get the slab for free? Oh well, <laughs> they did. Like oh, because they took it and they like sort us out later. Oh. And but the publicans come afterwards and everyone's like, well, we'll chip in. He's like, ah, oh, no, don't worry about it, girls. Welcome to Barnawatha. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> right, my uh, the, my friend who was sitting in the other car. So she was she was in the back seat of the car and the car was locked because she had the keys. Uh, and she was hot, so she'd taken her top off. So she's lying in the back seat of this car with her top off, um, and then she has just woken up to like a bunch of girls like screaming back, like "Open the car!" Oh and she's like, "All right," she's like, "Just calm down. I'll get there in a sec." It's like, "Can't calm down. This is an intense situation." I feel like I've just watched Wake and Fright again. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. The wait is over. Fee Wright is finally here to talk the latest in lit. Morning, Fee. Good morning. Good morning. I am fully dressed and prepared to talk to you all. <laughs> Never doubt it. Uh, now, this is uh, this is highly anticipated. 
Oh, this is the biggest book release. This is this is hipster Harry Potter. This is the, sorry, I just can see Daniel in the background just doing a bit of a spit take. Um, <laughs> it is it is the biggest book release. If you know someone who is aged between eighteen and fifty five and they like books, chances are in the last week they've either been talking about this book or they've been cursing Australia Post for not delivering this book. Um, it is Sally Rooney's new release beautiful world where are you and i'm not even kidding there are pop-up bookshops and festivals and parties happening in the uk right now for it it is oh i love that massive you can buy a um, a commemorative bucket hat if you so so desire um it is i've never seen such swag it's it's incredible um and for the book plot that I'm about to describe, if you haven't read any Sally Rooney, you'll be like, that's the plot for, and that deserves bucket hats. But here you go. It is um, about four white friends from Ireland. The main voices we hear are Alice and Eileen, two Irish young women. Alice, very interestingly, is a successful novelist with two huge smash hit books <laughs> and a TV series on the way. And Eileen is a literary magazine editor. Simon is a lefty in politics. Felix is broke and works in a factory. Alex and Alice and Felix hook up. Eileen and Simon hook up. We hear about their lives and thoughts through alternating perspectives. And if you have read Sally Rooney before, that sounds remarkably similar to her other two novels, um, Conversations with Friends or Normal People. And they are similar in context. And I don't actually think that's a bad thing. It's not like she's repeating the same sorts of people. I think that she's very interested in focusing in on relationships and how people navigate relationships and choices. And so she's been honing her craft as opposed to, um, I don't know, diversifying as it as it might work, oh, as it might be. And um, I've read and enjoyed the other two books and I thought they were like they were good. I read them quickly. Um, I can't actually remember any of the characters' names. I can't remember them clearly now. There's just like this sense of them, um, more like a gut feeling because Sally Rooney is skilled at um, verbal punches, and there's great insults throughout all of her books. Um, in one in 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 this book, actually, there's an insult which is you're very intelligent. It's a shame. I think your life would have been easier if you were a bit, if you weren't as smart as you are. It's like, oh, that is, that is mean. Um, so you just have this sense of them. But this book, I think, uh, if she went on to write about something completely different now, I'd be happy because I feel like this book is the pinnacle for her style. And she has this really interesting style, which is rotating narration. And that's a feature of all of her books. So it's, it's really interesting, but this time it's so much smoother. So she will have a chapter from the perspective of either Alice or Eileen, and it's often told from like an external narrator describing the events as they occur, and but also able to observe like an omnipotent narrator what the characters are thinking or feeling. And then the next chapter will be an email written by Alice or Eileen describing in their own words what just happened. So what becomes really fascinating to me is the gap between the narrative reality that the reader has experienced in the previous chapter um, with with the narrator and then switching back to how a character either justifies, explains or discusses an event. And they might just like breeze past 
a massive fight and be like, oh, we had a bit of a falling out last week. And it's like, oh, are you justifying that to yourself? Are you proud and you're trying to protect your own ego by saying you didn't lose an argument, you just had a tiff? You know, like how are you justifying what just occurred or how are you um, protecting yourself or how do you discuss it? And I find that so interesting, the gap between the reality and then what we tell ourselves or tell our friends later. Mm. And I find that really interesting how, you know, someone might soften or round the edges, you know, do they make themselves sound detached or hungry or passionate or disengaged? And how does that marry up with how they actually behaved? And I really love that gap between the two states. And I feel like Rooney was trying to explore that space along with modern relationships, which has been her thing all along. And now, additionally, I'm quoting Osman Faruqi, and Osman, I said I was going to do this. This is his quote. People will talk about the dialogue or the chemistry in Rooney's books, but what they actually mean is that the banging is good. And it's true that Rooney does know her way around some smut, and some readers might be disappointed that I think there's a little less action or that kind of action in this book compared to her last two, and there's more of a slow burn build-up focus and um, instead there's also a lot more discussion in emails of things like climate change and Marxism and she touches everything I don't know I loved it there you go I ate into the hype yeah yeah what when we have this new book associated with quote-unquote discourse what's being referred to there oh just um, I think it's about the hype if if I'm people there's a lot of criticism of Rooney and a lot of it is really valid that she's she's writing about privileged white people they're aware of their education their privileged status you know they're reflecting and complaining on their lives and their characters are aware of that you know they say things like the climate is changing the world is ending and I'm worried about my love life and they say that in the books and that is a legitimate problem and gap in her writing is that she's writing about these people. But doesn't she also write, I mean, she writes about class. Like she's very yeah. self-aware. Like her characters yeah. aren't all middle class by any means. Like she often butts them up against one another. Yeah, exactly. Like Felix in this novel works in a factory and is quite quite low, lowly paid and is um, often referred to throughout the book that he doesn't actually read books um, and that's not like a, a, a social commentary. Um, at all that you know that's fine that's who he is that's not a bad thing or a good thing that's just who he is Um, but I think that a lot of the criticism that is leveled at Rooney is that she's a younger female author and beloved by younger women readers and I feel like a lot of people might be just kind of grouchy or anti-hype but I loved getting excited about this book and I wasn't initially is excited because I was like, oh, there's a lot of hype. But, I mean, I didn't mind her last books, but, like, this is a lot. Uh, But the hype was fun, you know, Um, and I feel that a lot of the discourse has been people just kind of wanting to rag on people having a good time. Mm. I love love what it takes for a hat to – sorry, a book to inspire a bucket hat. Uh, It's so (laughs) rare these days that we get this kind of – hype around a book release, um, particularly one that isn't maybe in a series or, or, or something like that. And so what do you think it is about Rooney? Because I think about this a lot and, and the way she writes that has inspired this kind of feverishness uh, among readers. 
I think it's because her character depictions are so, so strong that you want to shake people repeatedly throughout the book and go, what are you doing? (laughs) And these conversations also could be remarkably similar to the ones that I have or anyone has, you know, like we've all got a friend living overseas right now, for example, um, and you're writing them long kind of rambly emails about what's going on in your life and also vaguely reflecting on things that are occurring at the same time around the space of politics or um, society in general. And the fact that she makes conversations sound so natural. And then in addition to that, she doesn't use talking marks, which again is such a unique feature of her, her writing. It's just that her character's don't they seem like you know mates down at the pub that you know well Mm. that's I think that's I don't know I can't um it's really hard to articulate and I I think about it a lot too (laughs) (laughs) it's interesting also since the release of normal people you've come in and talked about the the publishing world, talking about the new Sally Rooney or the Antipodean Sally Rooney or the ex Sally Rooney or the Y Sally Rooney Mm. and this is the Sally Rooney yeah totally And I think it's also the longest gap between her novels as well. I think the um, the last two came out very quickly within a year of each other and this one has had maybe three years, I think, three-ish years between between drinks. You know, in the middle of that there's been the TV series um, Normal People as well. So maybe that, that space um, for people... It's given a, um, it's given everyone a chance to kind of get on board. So if you hadn't have read it, her last two books... You've now had a chance to read them. You've gotten kind of invested in her style of storytelling and and now you're rewarded during lockdown mm. with um, a brand new one. And actually, in fact, I got the hardcover. Um, I went to my, my local neighbourhood books. Thank you very much. I went there and I got the hardcover because if you get the hardcover, there's an extra story at the end <gasps> and I haven't read it yet. Because I wanted to, this sounds ridiculous. I wanted to give myself something to look forward to the next time I have a hard day. Oh, <laughs> that's great. That's a good idea. Seriously, like it's to have something to look forward to in these times. Oh, it's totally. And something cultural. It's really special. Yeah, yeah. And it's, um, um, my, um, I've had people say to me, I feel like everyone I know is reading this book right now. And it is. It's one of those because, you know, there's nothing else to do right now. Full stop. There's nothing else to do right now. Full stop. Thank you. Exactly. Yeah. Where am, I, where am I going with this? No, it's literally, there's nothing else to do. And it's fun to get into something. I don't know. It's really nice. I've got um, messages from fen- voice memos from friends. We're basically starting a personal podcast at this point, going back and forth, discussing this book as people read various chapters right. and just getting everyone's kind of reflections on things as they happen. And, you know, it's been so long. since we've been able to do that because I guess, you know, if you watch something in the past, in the before times, it would have been like you you binged it over a weekend on Netflix and then, you know, someone would be in the background going, no spoilers, blah, blah, blah. But everyone reads at about the same pace. So people have been getting through this book and because there's nothing else to do, they've been chewing through it really quickly. So it's just been a really fun experience. And you can only read it for the first time once. And then it's exactly. over. And then it's over. <laughs> <laughs> so enjoy it now. Yeah. Get this. I think there's some sunshine this Arvo. Go get a copy, sit in the sunshine and um, enjoy some casual smut. Beautiful, beautiful world. <laughs> Where are you? By Sally Rooney. Fee Wright, thanks very much. Thank you. Triple R. Triple R.
time for Friday Funny Bugger here on Breakfasters, and we are joined by comedian and writer Michael Chamberlain. Last time we caught up with you, Michael, you're deep in lockdown in Sydney. You were crashing Gladys's press conferences. You were <laughs> having uh, shouting matches with real estate agents. What what's uh, been uh, happening in your life in the last week or so? Well, morning, Bob. Morning, Sarah. Morning, Elizabeth. Um, yeah, I actually found it fascinating, actually, because Gladys, you notice. A few weeks ago, she stopped doing press conferences at the front of the hospital where I crashed it because she was frightened of me, okay? <laughs> and, then she, and then she's moved them to Homebush too, so I think she did one last week. So I'm going to issue a challenge to Gladys Berejiklian right now, one-on-one, face-to-face, I'm coming for you. But in a friendly way, in a shouty way, in a shouty way. Uh, hey, can I quickly too say, how good is this show without Dan Burt? <laughs> It is so good. It's so much better. I think we should get a movement going. If you want to call the Triple R switchboard on 039-1027 and get the hashtag, uh, hashtag fire Dan, uh, we can maybe make Triple R great again. He actually just texted me um, saying that he felt, he felt weird. What did he say? Nonsensically jealous. Nonsensically jealous jealous that he's not here. This is his first day off from doing breakfast in two and a half years. Slack. What's what's, what's his um, excuse? Did he have a big night? Can't get it. He's actually, he's unwell. He's unwell. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. Well enough to text, but not well enough to come in. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I'll tell you what I've been doing this week. Yeah, I, so I thought I'd treat myself to. I, I caught up on some TV that I hadn't seen for a while, and um, I. And, and by the way, can I just quickly say I did watch The Masked Singer, and um, can I just say um, we're good friends now. Can you can you can call me by my legal name? My real name isn't Michael Chamberlain. My legal name is actually Pinata from The Masked Singer. Um, so <laughs> please call me that. Um, my mum and dad said uh, it, it's going to be a um, vampire from The Masked Singer if I was a girl, uh, but then they went with Pinata. But I've been watching The Masked Singer, and it's such a weird joke. It's such a weird joke. I find it so strange. And it got me thinking, you'd have to be such a weirdo to work on that show. You'd have to be such a weird weirdo. And then I checked my diary from a few weeks ago, and, oh, I worked on that show. <laughs> <laughs> what were you doing on that show? I write the script for Osha. Um, and I'm a backup dancer. <laughs> <laughs> I could give you, I could tell you who everyone is, but um, Channel Ten would put a pinata's head in my bed. So I can't <laughs> <do that. laughs> and then I watched the uh, first series. I'm Johnny Come Lately. I watched the first series of um, Succession. Have you guys watched that? No, I've heard no. great things about it though. Apparently, it's dude. just, dude. Yeah, what? It's amazing. Yeah. It's so amazing. It's incredible. If you don't know, it's a, it's about a family of um, about a twenty billion dollar. Um, they own a twenty billion dollar um, kind of media conglomerate, and um, you don't know how every now and then a show comes along that you can kind of really relate to. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but I come from a family of uh, worth twenty five billion dollars. Um, my dad invented chuck tops. And, <laughs> It was finally great to see people like me represented on the screen. You know? <laughs> I mean, if I could speak to little Pinata when he was when I was younger and just say, you know, everything is going to get, everything's going to be okay, because um, he's a very relatable story from my childhood. Um, you know, um, I, I wanted to go to Brisbane for Expo '88, and um, so my dad bought Expo '88 and transported it to Melbourne. <laughs> 
I had the Japanese pavilion in my bedroom. It's a, a different childhood. Oh, man. Uh, are you excited about the footy? I am very excited. We had the prelim finals last week, so as has been the tradition for about 100 years, 120 years, we're going to have the grand final tomorrow, so I cannot wait. I'm fired up. I'm absolutely fired up. Like, obviously, I've got to watch it by myself because um, of lockdown, um, but I'm all set. I've got some party pies and some footy francs and some drinks and... Um, I uh, contacted my drug dealer so I could celebrate like the players after the game. Uh, it's be... No, I, I do know the grand final is not tomorrow. Um, and it's interesting living in Sydney because there's obviously, you know, there's a bit of interest, but it's not massive. I, like this is earlier this year I went to a Hawthorne game um, and I had a few stand-up gigs, so I couldn't, I couldn't get there till half time. And I went to find the um, box office to get a ticket and I couldn't find it. And so I went to like a booth where like they let in officials or something. And this is the sound of interest in football in Sydney. I said to the guy behind the counter, I said, oh, mate, do you know where I can get tickets for the Hawthorne game? And he said, seriously, he said, what's a Hawthorne? Oh, my God. (laughs) Were you furious? I, well, actually, there was a gap in the in the gate, and so I just pointed and said, "Ah, oh, they're they're the people in the brown and gold over there running around." <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude! Um, but I tell you, this one that happened this week. This is this is the strangest thing. Okay, can I ask you a question? Can I ask you a question? Um, have you ever had someone come over and ask if they could sniff your home? Sniff? sniff. No. Sniff. No. No. Never. So I had a knock on the door this week and, um, like, I wasn't looking my best. And uh, it was the building manager and the guy who said he was on, like, the tenant board of the building. Um, And he very quickly added that he was a doctor, which I thought was strange. Um, (laughs) But they said said to me, look, there have been reports of a smell coming from your apartment. <laughs> I was like, what? I said, yeah, we've had, had reports that there's like this oh chemical spell coming from oh your apartment. And I was like, oh. and he said, and the doctor said, he gave a kind of the scientific name and he said, it's a particular chemical that's used in cleaning products. And if they're used individually, they can be quite hazardous. And I was like, um, no, I haven't, I haven't been smelling anything. And, but then I said to him, I said, well, actually, though, I don't have a great sense of smell. And he's gone, well, that could be a sign of COVID. I'm like, mate, I don't have COVID. <laughs> I don't have COVID. <laughs> and so they're a bit kind of apprehensive and they're kind of looking at each other. And so I said to, I said to the building manager, words I've never said before, I said, um, Alex, do you want to come in and smell my apartment? <laughs> And so this bloke just walked in and just put his nose to the air and just sniffed my apartment for like 20 seconds and then just gave the thumbs up, all good, and walked out. It was the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And then that afternoon I found out that I have COVID. (laughs) So that's why indoors. (laughs) 
Oh, Chambo. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So is this smell still lingering around your apartment? There is no smell. I've There's got no, no idea. Smell. I've literally got no idea where it came from. Like, I, I don't know, maybe I've got an enemy in the, in the building mm. who's like, I'm going to get him. I'm going <laughs> to say that this place smells. I have, I have no idea. I've never smelled it and... Uh, it may be coming from another floor or something, or maybe it's a maybe it's a hoax. Maybe it's a, the, a COVID the, hoax. The words "chemical smell" do suggest drug lab. Don't well, that's the thing. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, but it's like just the it's one better. Like, where do you keep a keep a meth lab when it's a one better? Like, you're, you've got to sleep somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh dear. Nightmare. Hey, you're doing something with uh, – you're doing some kind of grand final Zoom show, aren't you, Chambo? That's right. Do you exactly, want to talk yeah. about that? Yeah, sure. So I do an AFL podcast and the Jump Time AFL podcast, which is hilarious. <laughs> and uh, for the last five or six years, we've done a, a crossover show, usually a live show, but we've got to do it on Zoom this year with um, Will Anderson and Charlie Clawson from the Two Guys, One Cup uh, podcast. Uh, don't ask what that um, – that two guys one cup thing means um and so we're going to do a show this sunday on it's a zoom so zoom show at 4 p.m um on the day after the grand final so i think that's the 26th of september yep. we're going to shoot the breeze about the game and we've also got special guest Chaz lichardello from the chaser mm-hmm. and broden kelly from auntie donna so it's going to be sick awesome. oh fantastic nice. and tickets can be found at trybooking.com Excellent. Just type in junk time or two guys, one cup, and uh, it'll come up. Um, it's about 15 bucks. So do yourself a favour. Big time. I've got to hand it to every comedian who's doing Zoom shows at the moment. It must be really weird and, you know, well done for pulling your finger out and doing that. Well, these ones are kind of – it's better when you're kind of having a chat. When it's kind of trying to do stand-up, it's like it, – it's the kind of thing where you smile and pretend it's going fantastically. Yes, <laughs> completely. <laughs> thanks heaps, Chamber. We'll check in with you again. No drama, dudes. Have fun. See, See you. Triple R. Ahead of another weekend spent indoors, Simone Yuboli's here to talk stuff available to watch on screen. Morning, Simone. Good morning. Can you see us now, can you? Is that what you were <laughs> I just poked my hand out. Forward to meeting a face one day, Bobby McCumber. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, hit us with it. What What do you reckon? What do I reckon about the morning? Well, no. <laughs> what do you reckon about, I don't, what are you looking at, Dave and Rami? Dave and Rami, well, this kind of carries over from our off-air conversation. We were talking about Louis C.K. and Woody Allen, and um, the two TV shows I want to talk to you guys about today are about these ridiculous men um, in the tradition of Woody Allen and Louis C.K. by their own representation um, and are similarly kind of autobiographical shows. It all ties together. Mm-hmm. Men just love talking about themselves, and increasingly they have – um, platforms to do it. Um, so Rami is on Stan in Australia. It was made by Hulu. Uh, and it's about a millennial Muslim man living in New Jersey who is struggling with, um, being a kind of being morally committed to his faith and, and being kind of just a dipshit hipster <laughs> who is completely self-serving in every choice that he makes in life. He is. 
<laughs> and um, on on over on the west coast, we have Dave, which is a, a series um, that's on binge in Australia. It was made by FX, and it's um, again a kind of semi autobiographical story of a white Jewish guy who is convinced that he's the next Kanye. And it essentially kind of tracks his nascent progress through the rap music industry as this um, sort of gallingly self-believing, um, although quite talented, kind of comedy rapper by the name of Lil Dicky. So they're kind of about two different men and two different lives, but they're essentially about these like hilarious male egos that are awful but admittedly incredibly funny and obviously the men who are both starring in these shows and who are behind these shows, Dave Bird and Rami Youssef, are in fact incredibly talented writers and have remarkable comic sensibility. But people are looking for content as we are ongoingly locked down in our houses and these two shows are really, I loved them both um, for kind of similar reasons. So... Rami's a funny one. Rami's a bit older. Um, it premiered in 2019, had its second season last year. Um, and, you know, the standout episodes, what people have loved about Rami and what I also loved about Rami is that it's kind of portrayal of what it is to be a Muslim person in a Western context is incredibly nuanced. Um, Rami himself, you know, he believes in God and, again, like he's trying to be a good Muslim, um, <laughs> just – not such a great person, but he kind of pursues that through his um, family's history in Egypt, where his parents, who are not really particularly observant Muslims, um, came from. Uh, he falls in the second season with a, a Sufi mosque in New Jersey that he finds really inspirational and manages to create all kinds of chaos there, um, thinks that he's going to make a good Muslim marriage through the mosque and then ultimately just behaves completely reprehensibly with a cousin um, and I think the standout episodes of Rami are – sorry, have you guys seen either of these shows? You know, I've seen both of the seasons of Rami and my favourite episode was in the second season uh, all about the mother, Mesa. Uh, so the episode I think that was titled They. But she, I think one of the main reasons was because she reminded me so much of my mum. She's just from a different culture and some of the things that she would say were so cringeworthy but in, she had – she, her heart was in the right place and she tried, uh, but she didn't really have a filter. But I just loved his mum. I thought she was beautiful. She's like the, she's, she's, I think, like the best character in the series. Absolutely. Rami, right? That first season episode where she becomes a lift driver because yes. she's so kind of desperate for connection uh, and ends up having that strange dalliance with the French guy that kind of breaks her heart yeah. because her husband, Farouk, is kind of ignoring her. She's just got such. She's just such an – I mean, Bobby, you're right. She's just so funny because she's so wrong but also just such a beautifully hearted woman. She's She is – I totally agree with you. One of the best things about the show. Mm. Um, I think another standout for people has, was the Strawberries episode. It, it was a real kind of origin story episode for what we're watching, which is basically Rami as a 10-year-old boy um, in class, you know, in American primary school when September 11 happened. And sort of having some sense of what was going on, but not really understanding, having his own weird preoccupations about trying to masturbate as a kid, but also having this kind of, but becoming public enemy number one. And it 
changing his world, but as a child not really understanding why he became an outsider in his own society. But, you know, always framed in this, like, beautiful, incredibly funny way. Um, so there's a huge, huge amount there to kind of potentially challenge preconceptions um, about what Muslim society is in America. It's really funny. Um, and there's a, an incredible amount of heart, particularly in the family. But, yeah, Rami, fundamentally, Bobby, you agree with me, is kind of a dick. Absolutely. I mean, you have flawed main characters, but this guy, if it wasn't for the mum. <laughs> so awful. So repeatedly awful, much like the lead character of Dave, who maybe doesn't have the kind of gravity. Oh, he has a lovely family. They're a bit more comical. He doesn't have the kind of heart. I think Dave doesn't quite hit the emotional tones that Rami does. Um but I think it's absolutely as funny. And, again, it's just this kind of wild ego on display. The pleasures for me with Dave um, watching this character, little Dicky, little kind of navigate the L.A. rap scene is that because Dave Bird is actually a very successful comedy rapper called Lil Dicky, he is networked really well in L.A. and the show is just, like, littered with cameos with super high-profile rappers and music industry people like Young Thug and Trippy Red and... He actually doesn't appear, but there's an amazing scene that's um, that's shot at Rick Rubin's house. <laughs> where he's like this guru. Um, I think that there is actually really beautiful and kind of hard. There's some it does it does kind of get you in the in the feels a couple of times, Dave. There's one amazing episode again, origin story for Dave's hype man Gator, who has bipolar disorder, and it essentially is talking about how that has been a challenge for him. You know, and how how destabilizing it is generally for a person, but how Dave ultimately kind of loves, accepts, and supports him in that, and that's a really powerful episode. Um, but mostly, it's just trippy and funny. Like the the Rick Rubin episode, um, Dave, who is sort of relentlessly, he's like neurotic, relentlessly kind of egotistical and self centered. But also very funny. The, the Rick Rubin episode, he has this incredible kind of hallucinatory dream where he's trying to, he's blocked and he's trying to make a record and he's trying to get to get his own sense of authenticity. And essentially, first of all, there's a scene where he like, no, I can't ruin it. There's there's <laughs> lots of references to how he's appropriating as a white man hip hop that are interesting, that are a little bit self-excusing, but at least they're in there and it's kind of interesting to contemplate. But ultimately, you know, he's facing off against this kind of bold guru version of himself who who is essentially saying, you're funny, that's what you are, you rap about your dick, so just rap about your dick. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Is, so, there, is, there much, is there many – so we've got one season of Dave and two seasons of Rami. Do you suspect there's more legs in this? There are two of both. Oh, Okay. So, Dave just aired. There's definitely a third season of Dave on the way. Um, it could go anywhere. It's It's got to expand its emotional depth. It really needs to um, – I think there's just too much competing incredible television that can function all those levels. Mm. I don't know if Ram is going into a third season. I'd be surprised if it didn't. Um, but, yeah, both of them have so much more terrain. And it's amazing to see how they kind of expanded from, like, establishing the rules of the world that they're in to – TV just becomes so ambitious so quickly these days um, and there's a lot of money behind both. So I'd say, yes, 100% there's going to be more. Yeah. Um, but there – and, you know, particularly 
I don't know if, about you guys, but I actually am struggling to commit to like long form drama. Yeah. Um, my brain is just, I don't know, very resistant. Um, these half an hour, plenty of laughs, comedy series um, are a hidden spot for me at this ongoing time of pandemic lockdown. Yeah. That's so Rami one. and Dave, sort of two sides of the same coin, and if you like one, you'll likely like the other. Yeah, and if you don't like one, you're not going to like it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> cool. Uh, excellent. Simone Ubaldi, thanks very much. Thanks very much, guys. Have a good week. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website. <laughs> <laughs>